This is Rose. And this is Mary. And this is Let's Be Honest Bite Size. This is a slice of our Africa bite size. It's a little bit about our history and a little bit about our take on its impact on our lives today. Summed up with African proverbs to give it all meaning. My mom's really good friend when I was little was a lady from coastal Kenya. Marvelous, beautiful, wonderful lady and her family. And we would sometimes go over the weekend for a meal. Highlight, highlight of my life. Because coming from my community, which cooks very good stew, Mm. it was quite... (laughs) It was quite... um, Like going into Alice and the wonderland of food. From the minute the doors of my mum's friend's home opened, the sweet aroma of savoury and sweet food, the sizzling sound of Mm. food frying, onions, garlic, cinnamon, cardamom. Oh, Oh, I can smell it. The rice with cloves and turmeric powder. The sweets that were made from scratch by the grandmother in the kitchen. I was in heaven. Let's just put it that way. I'm hungry now. (laughs) But there's also a lot about the culture that I found very different from mainland upper Kenyans. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. In the sense that these were coastal Kenyans and they seemed to have a richer identity and culture than us who were what they call Bara, Watuabara. People of the mainland. And I'm not putting us down as Watuabara. I'm just simply saying they seem to be more in touch with their roots and their culture. And I wanted to understand why is that? Mm-hmm. So I did a little digging mm-hmm. and read a couple of books. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the height of the Swahili civilization is between the 1300s and the 1500s. Okay. That is when they came into the glorious, we can call it the glorious era of the Swahili civilization. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, who were they? And, you know, there's been a lot of conjecture and arguments that they're not African, it's not an indigenous culture. But I beg to differ. From a lot of the books that I read, including some of the most famous Al-Min Mazrui's books and what he wrote about his community, mm-hmm. is that the original Proto-Swahili people were found in an area of Kenya towards the northern coastal border of Kenya and Somalia called Shungwaya. Now, even my community talks about Shungwaya. And a lot of Eastern Bantus talk about Shungwaya as their home of origin. So it tallies with a lot of oral history from other Bantus within this region. Right. So from Shungwaya, the Cushitic people are now expanding and pushing them down. So some of them go towards the islands of Lamu, others further down across the coastal areas, and some into the interior. Mm-hmm. And they were called the Wangozi. Now, this Wangozi, uh, according to Almin Mazrui, is the fact that they wore leather clothes. And case in point, my 
community wore leather up until when the colonials came. Mm-hmm. Or could it be that this was the vanguard? Wale Waliongoza? I don't know. I'm not a Swahili expert. Those who led. Yes. Like leaders. The vanguard mm. or the original people. Hmm. So from there now, you have the splitting of the communities, those who stay along the coastal line and those who go into the interior. And those who stay along the coastal line settle there around 200 AD. And so they are known as the Proto-Bantu, and so they make up the different communities found in that area. And amongst the Swahili people, ancient Swahili people, you get the different communities, about nine or 12, depending on who you're talking to. And then today, that's where you get the different dialects in Swahili. Kimvita, Kimguja, Kiamu. Aha. So again, you see that these are Bantu peoples, Bantu language, they claim to have a common origin with inland Bantu speakers. Right. So from there now, the question is, where does their name come from? And again, Almin Mazrui argues that it is when outsiders ask them who they are, their answer was Sisinivatu wa Ziwahili. We are the people of these islands. In fact, even as far south as the Comoros, their dialect of Swahili is known as Shi Masiwa. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So the question now is, is, are there ancient accounts of these people? And if there are, what did they look like? So according to the Roman times, in Roman times, there was a group of people who lived along the coast of Africa from the tip of the horn down all the way to the south called, and this nation was called Azania. Mm-hmm. Yes, so you've heard of that one, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, I've heard you? of Azania. Then there's the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea that was written in 1 AD by a Greek merchant sailor. And he talks about non-Arab, dark-skinned people, who he calls Zanj. Now, remember Zanj, Z-A-N-J, is the name given by the Arab community to dark-skinned people who are not Arab. So it's an appellation, Hmm. yes, from another group of people, Right. right? So that does not mean that these people are called Zanj. No. It's just the outsiders call them Zanj, according to this account in 1 AD by a Greek merchant, sailor. And that these people were seafarers and merchants. And this is when 1 AD. Wow. That's 100 years after Christ, right? So as far back as then, they were known as seafarers, dark-skinned, well-built, tall, dark people. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) <laughs> then, <laughs> in the 10th century, another Arab, no, this is an Arab writer called Al-Masud. He writes about the East African coast having a group of people, very dark-skinned, who are merchants and sailors. And they would sail up and down the coast of East Africa from the Horn all the way down to the Cape. Right. And they had leaders called Wafalme. Huh. Now, isn't that the name for king in Swahili? Yes, it is. The plural of Mfalme, king. So now, 12th century, there's an Arab writer called Al-Idrisi, and he talked about meeting a people called Jawagan, D-J, 
A W A G A N Jawagan. So again, is this a name that they call themselves or a name he gave right. them? And he says these were dark people who traveled to various islands of the region in large and small boats. Hmm. So you're seeing even the idea of them being merchants, being seafaring people, right. is something that is in their culture. Yeah, this is not something brought to them. No, it's not. Yes. Now, 14th century. This is one of my favorite Arab travelers, Ibn Battuta. Mm. He mentions how he traveled, and he traveled all over the known world at this time. So he had come from Mogadishu, which he didn't quite like, and then he comes into Mombasa, and he said it was beautiful. The people were amazing, and the air was so fresh, and there were fruits everywhere, and beautiful trees that were full of flowers and blooms. He said it was. Absolutely stunning. It's paradise. Way describes it. And he called them the Sawahil. Mm, now we're getting closer. Exactly. So now this is a people who had created maritime and inland trade routes. They were trading as far as China, Asia, India, the Persian. Gulf area and the coast of East Africa, mm-hmm. so it was inevitable that there would be a cross pollination of cultures, yeah. language, food. Right. But essentially, the very foundation, the basis of who these people are, is Bantu. Mm. Yes. So the Swahili community had set up trading posts into the interior, where they would collect what was most coveted in the known world at the time. They were collecting. Ivory, rhino horn, gold. Very currency at the time. Exactly. And they were bringing from the coast to the people beads, glassware, cloth, things mm. that they didn't have. But in the process, they were also leaving little snippets of their language or language that was part of their culture. Because remember, around the 1300s, there was a major con- uh, conversion of the Swahili people to Islam. Yes. Because a merchant class was growing, and this merchant class was now becoming rich, and wanted to ensure that they continued with good trade relations with the mm. Arabs that were coming in in plenty. Mm-hmm. So, by becoming Muslim, they were now creating a bond of brotherhood with these traders. So now these Swahili merchants are coming into inland Africa and they're carrying with them Islam. And in the process, words from Arab, you know, the Arab world, Arabic. So in my community, the Kikuyu community, 12 noon is the Nashara. So mm-hmm. I have a relative from the coastal region and he heard, you know, family members saying the Nashara. And he kept asking, what are you saying? And I'm like, uh, it's noon. And he's like, no, 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 that's not Kikuyu. I'm like, it is. We say the Nashara for 12 noon. And he said, no, that's Arabic. Now, I've studied a little Arabic. So I'm like, no way. And he's like, say it slowly. So I'm like, the Nashara. He goes, what is two in Arabic? I'm like, Ithnain. What is 10 in Arabic? Ashara. Hmm. What is 12? It's Ithnain and Ashara, the two and the ten, Dinashara, Ithna Ashara. There you go. I was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> But imagine the impact that they even had in inland Africa. Yeah. 
So what happened is around the 1300s, especially with the conversion of a lot of uh, merchant families to Islam, they started intermarrying with some of the traders that were coming in. But it was mainly males who were intermarrying with local girls. Mm-hmm. So there is an account in the Parthic Chronicles of a Persian man called Suleiman who marries a young girl from Pate Island, a local Swahili girl. And with that marriage starts the Nabkhani dynasty of that area. <laughs> Amazing. And then... So it's reached its zenith between 1300 and 1500. And of course, even now, when you're wealthy, you want beautiful things. So even your structures of the homes become different. You're not just going to have mud and wattle. You're going to make it stronger and firmer because you want to hand this home over to your relatives, to your descendants, to your children. You also want to entertain in these homes. And so they're changing now the structure of how they're building their homes. And I know there's been that argument that the structures are not of Africa, but no, archaeological evidence has shown that even their designs of the tombs are in no way in- influenced by Ar- Arabia. In fact, there's no precedence of it in the Arab world. Mm. These are indigenous to this part of the world. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? It is. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Now, sadly, around the 1500s, we have the coming of the Portuguese. Yes. 1498, the Portuguese make it to Mozambique. And in the process, they are absolutely savage. Mm. Burn down villages, capture people, and send them as slaves to the newfound land. So what happens now is the slow disintegration of this connection of various city-states that started all the way from the Horn all the way down south to Mozambique. Mm -hmm. They were not a unified polity. And maybe if they had been, they would have been able to send an army down to fight because they didn't even have standing armies. This was a group of people that had kiungwana. They had honor in their dealings. But also they were merchants. They weren't a military people. Exactly. And so with the Portuguese coming in and trying to take over territory and also taking over the trade routes, you see the disintegration of these trade connections that the Swahili and the Arabs and the Indians and even the Chinese had. You know the story Mm -hmm. of the Chinese descendants in Lamu, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that merchant ship that was led by Zheng He in the 15th century where 20 shipwrecked Chinese sailors washed up onto the shore of Lamu and apparently were given permission to settle down after they killed a terrible python. Mm-hmm. And they married into the families. And in fact, in 2002, DNA confirmed this, that there were six descendants still living from those 20 shipwrecked Chinese sailors. And in fact, a young girl called Muamaka Sharifu was given a scholarship to go study in China. Yeah, you actually beat me to that story because I do remember that story. And even some of the names of the Chinese sailors still carry on. They have names like Famao and Wei amongst the community. Yeah. So what we have here is a community of people whose way of life was subtly and utterly um, severed. 
because of the coming of the Portuguese, again, colonialists. Mm. There are accounts that because the Mazrui family pushed the Portuguese from Mombasa to Malindi, mm. it actually stopped us from speaking Portuguese today. Hallelujah. Right. Well, we speak English. <laughs> yeah, he's like, <laughs> either or, either or. But it's just fascinating how a group of individuals were able to create this beautiful, rich tapestry, the very foundation African, and then drawing from other communities. Yeah. The very essence of the language is still African. Mm-hmm. I am a Bantu speaker and I can right. understand Swahili. It's easy for other Bantu speakers to speak Swahili. But because they've been able to incorporate other languages into right. the language, it's still an African language. It is. I mean, I'm ethnically Nilotic, mm-hmm. but because I speak Swahili, mm. I understand other Bantu languages because of yes. it. And and going further south, mm. like even when I hear Shona mm. on Debele or um, there's a time I was in the cafeteria in campus and mm. there were people speaking Chichewa, I could connect yeah. the words that they were using. And what is most fascinating is prior to independence, a lot of Swahili scholars actually came together to standardize a language that would become our national language, also Tanzania's. Mm-hmm. And some of the scholars were like Shihabuddin Shiragdin, whose daughter has written a wonderful book. Her name is Latifa. And Latifa wrote a book about her father, Life Journey of a Swahili Scholar. Now, the interesting thing about Shihabuddin Shiragdin is that that last name of his is actually from Pakistan. Hmm. And his father came to Kenya in the late 1800s, around 1898, uh, going into the 1900s. Yeah. And this is when Britain is now governing this space. And of course, they're also governing India, which encompassed Pakistan, India. Yeah. And so he had come to Kenya to look for greener pastures. And like ma- many did in the 1800s. Yeah. yeah. And he married a local Swahili girl. And he was a bit of an elderly gentleman. So he had children with this wonderful girl. And these children were born into an African environment, into a Swahili culture. Right. Even though they were part Pakistani and carried the names, for all intents and purposes, Africa was born in them. They were born in Africa. And so this gentleman, Shihabuddin Shiragdin, became a Swahili scholar because of that culture that he was brought up in from his mother's side. You know, that's the interesting thing about identity. Mm -hmm. It's not just the Swahili alone, it's just Kenya blows my mind. Mm. Like there are people here with Pakistani, Indian Mm. origin, Mm. Chinese heritage, Mm. four or five generations Mm. down, six, seven. it's we're just this mashup of so many people, mm-hmm. but it's a history we don't even know. And it's a beautiful tapestry that has made us who we are and enriched our culture. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have chapatis had it not been for the Indian community coming in. We into wouldn't our- have chapati and dengue because that's dal. Mm. Right. Um, and even the spices from the coast. We love our pilau. We love mm. our biryani. Yes. There's just so much about it that is just so powerful and so beautiful and Just sharing these stories every so often in these podcast episodes just adds to the pride I feel about (laughs) being Kenyan. 
So we have a special today because we have one of Nairobi's most amazing male voice artists, Ali Mongola. <laughs> and Ali Mongola will actually be the one reciting a Swahili proverb. So we're going to play the recording for you and what it means. And I hope you enjoy this podcast and will reach out and give us ideas about communities in this country and even beyond the borders that mm. we can discuss history that has been forgotten but not lost. Yeah. Hi, Mary and Rose. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast, uh, the Let's Be Honest Bite Size podcast today. And it's on the origin of the term Swahili and the language Swahili. And you've asked me to contribute... A proverb, or in the as is known in Swahili, methali. So today's proverb is mvumilivu hulambivu. Now, to translate it literally, that means the one who has perseverance eats what is ripe. Uh, if I would say it in a, another way in English, I'd say good things come to those who wait. Now, in light of what we're experiencing now around the world, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it's important to uh, persevere through this. So I'm sharing this at a time when uh, we're facing challenges and difficulties. And this this uh, this proverb is applicable in our lives because every day our lives aren't easy. And we face different challenges every day. And, you know, we have to be patient, but most so it's perseverance. Perseverance really says a lot about your character. So when you hear somebody saying, Vumilivu hulambivu, just know, is this, is this telling you that, look, pers uh, perseverance pays. If you persevere, you will eventually eat what is ripe. I hope this makes sense to all the listeners out there. But uh, all the same, I'm grateful and, and all the best. Uh, props to you guys. And, uh, you know, I'll keep listening to you as well. And I hope your audience grows in leaps and bounds. Thank you so much for listening. Please, please send us those emails. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Asante. Kwaheri. This episode of Let's Be Honest Bite Size was recorded at Big City Studios in Nairobi. To listen to episodes of Let's Be Honest with Rose and Mary and Let's Be Honest Bite Size, you can subscribe to Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Radio Public, Anchor FM, or your favorite podcast platform of choice. To stay in touch with us, follow us on at Let's Be Honest KE on Instagram or email us on ask at letsbehonest.co.ke. 